Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my able co-host, Ed Stevens. It's been a little while since we last recorded. COVID made it impossible for us to use the studio, and we were also initially reluctant to record remotely, thinking that we struggled to build rapport with our guests. All this coincided with busy periods for both of us, me launching Elmo, and Ed taking the lead on a number of projects at Angel Investment Network. Anyway, we caved, and we now have a roster of exciting guests lined up in the coming weeks, all recorded remotely. To kick off, we're going back to where we started nearly three years ago with the brilliant Anthony Rose, founder of Seed Legals. In Anthony's signature style, we romp through the company's extraordinary progress over the last three years and explore the future of startup fundraising. So without further ado, we bring you Anthony Rose, round two. Anthony, thank you for joining us yet again. Thank you so much. It's delightful to have you back. There's obviously quite a lot to talk about, but let's just set the scene again for anybody who didn't listen to the first episode. Can you just introduce Seed Legals and what it is that you're building? And then we'll kind of try and go into where you've gone since we last spoke. So over to you, Seed Legals. Please do share your story with us. So great. Thank you. So Seed Legals, if you're looking to do a funding round, you're looking to give share options to your team, if you're looking for all the legals to build your business, this is the place to come. Don't go to a law firm. It's a 24-7 automated thing. The way I run the business is I like to think, what would a law firm do? And then do completely the opposite. So uh, there are now, we're now 60 people. There are about more than 15,000 UK startups uh, on Seed Legals. We think we do about 15% of all early stage funding rounds in the UK are now done through Seed Legals. And something like 20 or 25% of all share options, EMI option schemes are done on Seed Legals. So uh, when I think back to our very first uh, podcast back in early 2018, I think we just started. We we're probably like 10 people then. So now 60 and of course mm. now all working from home and, uh, you know, my life is on Zoom these days. But, uh, but yes, things have changed. But actually, I think one of the interesting things is that we read about lots of doom and gloom. And I think one of the key messages that I want to get across for any founder, uh, if I completely segue from where you wanted to go on this uh, <laughs> thread but uh, <laughs> but actually I, th- I think when covid hit we saw you know lots of news about you know things falling apart and so on and we saw a dip in uh, funding rounds but then things have picked up and actually we've had a record number of funding rounds in the last few weeks last week actually was the global record for us i don't know if that's just us building more market share or things up again but i think one of the things that is clear um, and maybe we'll touch on this a bit further is that for a founder procrastination is not an option you know procrastination is death if you're a startup and when uh, COVID started we you know, all thought the government said it's going to be like two weeks of lockdown. Of course, it'll probably be like six weeks, cut to six months mm-hmm. later. I figure whatever we uh, position we're in today, it's going to be like this for the next year. You know, what I call continuous partial lockdown. And so for those people who decided to hold on fundraising, growing, whatever it might be, they would have been holding for the last six months, they're going to be holding forever. So, you know, don't, procrastination is really not an option. And I think for those, you know, who might have been thinking for for months, well, I'll just wait a bit longer to find investment or investors going, well, I'll just wait till things get better. 
it's not going to change anytime soon. You may as well get on with it. Sorry about the digression. And before we dive into that a little bit more, and I, I know we touched on this three years ago, but it was three years ago, and we've got some new listeners since since then. So maybe just give us a, a very very quick overview of uh, of how you came to do Seed Legals because you're you're not a first time founder. You're you're very experienced, and and that leads into the the Seed Legal story. Yeah. So thank you. So I mean, I used to head up uh, BBC iPlayer. And, uh, you know, after a while at the BBC, when shipped iPlayer looking for the next challenge, I left and built a startup and then I sold that. And then I built another startup and sold that, invested in a few and then got tired of paying lawyers, thought no more about it. And then met my uh, business partner and co-founder, Laurent Lafie, an ex-VC and serial angel investor. We actually met at an investor party and uh, he was saying, well, you know, those lawyers, they charge a fortune, they make mistakes, they take forever, we should change that. And we got together and actually set out uh, changing that. So that that's the backstory. So it's interesting, when you have something that's an ideological aim to improve something, one would expect that your offering is a no-brainer. Since we spoke to you in 2018, has it sort of unfolded as you might have imagined it would have done in terms of people just on board themselves and, and are really seeing the value or you've had any specific challenges in terms of getting the message out there? That's a really great question. I think, you know, when you look uh, generically, when I look at a startup, I think founders, there's always the proof point. What's the most difficult problem that's going to have your business succeed or not? And for different founders in different spaces, it could be different. It might be, can I build a team? Maybe you just have no ability to build a team. Can I um, create the technology? Can I get investment? Will people want my products? And so, you know, since, you know, my business partner and I have been around for a while, we figured we could build a team, we could raise investment, we could build what we wanted. We knew that startups would love it, but our proof point would be, would investors or lawyers want it or allow it? And it's possible that founders would love what we've got, but no investor would want to use a, you know, an online platform. And so... I was delighted that very quickly we discovered that not only did investors were they okay with it, but they actually loved it. A good fraction of our incoming, uh, you know, referrals are from investors who go, "You have to use seed legals." <laughs> and my last round was on seed legals; it worked well. So, I would kind of love to have this hard luck story about how we pivoted three times and was desperate. But I'm almost embarrassed to say it's kind of gone pretty much as we had hoped for. I mean, there's an insane number of hours I put on on a daily basis. I work super hard to, you know, have seed legals well known. I think uh, writing content, content marketing is, is key for us. It sounds sort of like marketing, but I think one of the ways that I like, love to build the business, and I think it's also in the what would a law firm do and how can we do the opposite, <laughs> is the way, the, 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 and, and actually the mantra of our team is to use technology constantly to put ourselves out of business. So coming back to your question about what is the challenge, I think one of the really interesting things is, you know, when we started the business, was it going to turn out to be the AWS of legals where, you know, we'd have lots of tech people and no one would ever speak to another human. It was entirely self-service. Or would it be a law firm with a fancy website? And I had no intention of building a law firm. It's not me. I'm not a lawyer. But that's what I wanted to 
to do something different. Mm -hmm. But it was also clear that people need to speak to a human. Our platform beautifully builds all the legals you need if you know what you want. But people often don't know what they want. Some founders know exactly what they want, but others need a hand. And usually the hand that they need is not actually about the legals, it's about commercials. So I was on a call this morning with somebody who wants to raise, but then he wants to raise like five to 10 million in a few months time. And is that gonna be achievable or should he wait longer and raise more before the round? Because realistically, if he wants to raise five million, it needs to be at a 20 or 25 million valuation. How will he get there in those months? So in fact, what people are looking for is commercial experience and then the platform builds everything. So the question for me is, would I end up with a big team of lawyers, which I really didn't want? Would I have a big team of you know, developers and, and insist that you use the platform where you have to go elsewhere? And what it's turned out to be is somewhere in between, which is what uh, somebody has uh, described as, you know, beautiful man plus machine interface, mm -hmm. which is it's a sort of uh, my goal is a seamless experience where the uh, the platform does as much as possible. But we here seamlessly on web chat on Zoom calls to do anything that you need. And it's all in the you know spirit of the opposite of what a law firm would do. It's unlimited help, median response time, five minutes, according to Intercom. And uh, so, so that's the way we do it. But the question then is, would I have a scalable business model or would I just be losing more and more money each month on this crazy business model? And it turns out that since we actually were profitable last quarter, the, uh, the business model actually works. But to do that, what I love to do is each time someone, by the third time someone has asked us the same question, we'll then write an article on it. We'll build a feature on the platform for that. So the mantra um, to the team is answer with an article. And what I love, and actually I'm amazed that anyone could do the opposite. So I think for a lawyer, they are probably spending each day solving the same problem again and again. Mm. What I like to do is spend unbounded capex to solve a problem once only. So, you know, a common problem, for example, is a foundry is leaving and they need to, what, what happens with their unvested shares and what are the tax things? Like, dude, I have no idea. So we could, instead of, you know, giving the same advice each time, we'll find somebody, give them some weeks to go research it, write an article on it, and then that becomes great content on the internet for anyone Googling about gift holdover relief, which is part of the solution, or the intercom web chat system, the bot will start recommending the article or our team will, and then we may create a product on our share uh, transfer products to automate that. So. It's almost like gamifying every uh, thing that you get to go, how can we use technology after establishing it's a common problem rather than what do I do with the elephant, which is probably not really, a, I don't need a scalable solution for that one, but all other things, can you build something so that you don't need to spend as much time on it personally next time? I think I'm, I'm well-placed to testify to all of that. In the intervening three years, I've, I've become a founder myself and raised a, around on, on C legals and I think I'm probably single-handedly responsible for for some of those questions because <laughs> I asked them so many times and I can also testify to the amount of um, work that you put in person I remember requesting a, a feature and then 
half an hour later it'd been coded into the site by by you um that, that that's so half, yeah it's half uh, of the course usually yeah. at about 2 a.m i have to say it's so. <laughs> It, it yeah. was a peculiar time, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you a question. Basically, a chance for you to come out and, and handle detractors, basically. I've noticed there's a sort of desire from law firms to say, ah, you know, it can't be it can't be automated. It's, it's not nuanced enough. It'll give them, you know, terms that are going to harm them down the line. So the Seed Legal's answer, what would your response be to sort of a general mistrust by law firms, I guess, looking to maintain their own dominance that you, you would give them? Well, I'm most amused to say that, uh, you know, as we've been growing, we're hiring about a person a week at the moment. Um, some of the people I've been looking to hire have been on our legal team. And when I've been interviewing lawyers, they've been telling me that one of their, one of their missions at a law firm was to persuade people not to use seed legal. So <laughs> people come to, come to the law firm, the, the, the constant thing is, yeah, but seed legals will do this for much less and much faster and tell me why I shouldn't use them. But uh, um, but actually, uh, I think what's fascinating, and, and uh, I think an interesting problem space for us is we've intentionally built the platform to constrain some of the things that you can do. It's, I mean, some of it's obviously a tech limitation because you can't do everything technically, but for the vast majority, it's an intentional limitation. So, for example, in a funding round, you can set the founder vesting period and it goes up to five years or whatever. It doesn't go to 15 years or the number of investor directors you can set only goes to a certain number. So... Uh, my goal is, in fact, uh, in it, you know, if you think about it sort of more broadly, there are a few parties trying to agree something uh, with each other. If you let the frame of reference be infinitely large, then this debate could go on forever. Mm. So one of the key interesting questions when we started uh, Seed Legals was how much freedom do you provide? And if you provide almost no variables, you, hey, you push these buttons and you get this result. We think it's a great result, but you have no freedom to change it. Mm. The good news is it's insanely easy to do a funding round, but the reality is for the vast majority of people, they just wouldn't be able to use it. On the flip side, if you made everything customizable, then it would be like doing your tax return or something. It would be no fun. And also, no one would know what they're doing. They'd all have to go back to a lawyer. So uh, what my goal was is initially there were fewer variables that we allowed. And then as people started bumping into limits, it's a bit like kind of, you know, the wisdom of Solomon maybe to go, is this a good thing? It's a do no evil kind of thing. So somebody goes, I'd like to do X. And now the thinking process is, in general, is X a good thing to do? Mm -hmm. If yes, let's enhance the platform to do that. If no, can we show you why you probably don't want to do X? And actually, if you still want to do X, all right, we'll figure out how to, to make that possible for you. So I think the, the short answer to your question is a couple of things. One, it turns out that although every startup is different, Startup funding rounds are remarkably self-similar. You might think that yours is unique, but actually when you look at over a thousand rounds, 
they all follow, with rare exception, the similar pattern. So what I realized is if firstly we can sort of reflect market, which is find out what the pattern is and just build that pattern, and then secondly make market by using data to show people where they probably want to close and helping people change the way they operate based on how you get to doing something faster, more agile, whatever it is, that would be better. So all of which is to say, actually, I'm intentionally wanting to do the opposite of the old way. The old way is you have unlimited freedom. My lawyer will will dial the pendulum insanely in my favor, and then your lawyer will dial it back insanely in your favor, and each charging respective parties a few hundred pounds an hour for the privilege of doing that, at the end of which, statistically, you're going to settle in exactly the same place that my data shows you're mm. likely to settle. So why don't I just guide you to that place? And of course, we're here to help you. But I think one of the interesting things also is that what founders often don't think about is that you know fundraising is a multi-move chess game. And thanks to my business partner, Laurent, who's a genius at these things, he plays his chess games three moves out. And actually, we've built our deal docs to think about that. So for a founder, they, for example, might be thinking, I'm just going to set things insanely in my favor when I send out the term sheet. But guess what? All that happens is the investor goes, no, 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 this is ridiculous. Let me send you my deal docs, which is much worse than sending something that is going to be the best deal that you may get rather than the best deal you could possibly get. Mm. And I, I think a bit like that with maybe the, uh, I'll be contentious here, um, mm. with Brexit, where maybe the EU said, let's do the best deal we can possibly do, which then ultimately got rejected completely, rather than let's go with the best deal we're likely to get, which in fact would be less good, but much better than no deal. So. With that in mind, I've completely killed the discussion. But anyway, next question. <laughs> Quickly change topics. I mean, perhaps to, yeah. to, to, to toss a bone to uh, traditional lawyers, is there any, any situation where perhaps you would recommend using them over your platform? Or, or given all the arguments you've just put forward? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, there are only certain areas we cover, right? So there's also litigation, there are tax things we don't get involved with. There are things that just fall outside the scope of what we can do. There are things that, you know, I mean, what we do is we try to pick things that people commonly do um, in, in our sphere, right? We don't do property and other things. So there's a large number of things. And in fact, we have partnerships with law firms. Um, I think one of the, the great partnerships we have is uh, with Simons Muirhead on Future Fund. So Future Fund, you know, government uh, loan that uh, we automate some of it, but it needs a, uh, an SRA regulated law firm to hold the client funds. So we partner there, works really well. But there are others where, you know, maybe somebody needs some you know, commercial agreement that accompanies a funding round. So, so yeah, uh, you know, th there's a nice uh, partnership as well as a bit of healthy, uh, you know, competition. Um, and <laughs> Anthony, in terms of, I guess, your hybrid model of creating the educational content and then creating the functional technology to be able to deliver um, the term sheets and legals for people, how far or how much of that sort of landscape do you think you've now mapped out? 
and how much is still product yet to be made in terms of the early stage funding um, agreements for people? That's a great question. So I think if we think about the evolution um, and disruption in general, um, I, I think there are kind of two vectors to this answer. The first one is, um, you know, once upon a time in a contract, you know, you'd create some templates or, you know, lawyers all use PLC or a few other sources for their draft contracts and then they manually edit it. And people would use Word and Redline track changing and manually. We've automated all of that. And what we've done is we've reduced um, a contract to a set of inputs and you specify the inputs and the platform then, you know, uh, builds the output document. So you can, in a funding round, they're probably... 50 things that you might agree and there are another 50 more advanced things that you might want to agree and then with more than a thousand like 2000 conditionals we will build a shareholder agreement or articles so i'm delighted that we've automated that i'm immensely proud of it but on the other hand i feel kind of bad why do we have to ask people like a hundred questions surely there's a better next step, which is the AI-driven version, where I go, instead of asking you how many investor directors do you want and what, what drag along and tag along, which are you know, really good because founders never understood this stuff beforehand. And by asking the questions, in fact, it's got two purposes. One of them is to get the right things for that funder, founder and investor, but two, to educate the founder because otherwise they end up reading hundreds of pages in a year's time when things go wrong and have no idea what they signed. But can I do better? And wouldn't it be great if it just says, um, you know, hey, uh, tell me a bit about your company. By the way, we've, we've paused your website. We can see the traction you've got. We've used similar web to look at your numbers. Um, tell us a bit about your investors. Oh, we know the terms of those ones. Uh, so, thanks for that. How much do you want to raise? Great. We've built the perfect term sheet for you based on, you know, your sector and your investors. And that seems to be kind of what I'd love to do to go. I don't need you to answer all the stuff. Actually, we know what the answer is like. You can still tweak it, of course, if you want. But, but you know, so I think that's the next step. The other you... part to the answer is that I'm also you know, immensely uh, proud that we have taken a domain um, and automated and, you know, greatly increased the efficiency of doing a particular task. And the particular task is, you know, a few parties agreeing a contract, but the output, we don't seek to change the legal system. It still creates exactly the same contract you would have gotten before. It's just a more uh, efficient way of getting there. You know, the, the, the articles we create are the, what's called the BVCA model article standard. That's the industry standard. So we're not saying, you know, it won't be adjudicated by judges or reviewed by lawyers, but my, my sort of, I wouldn't quite say worry, but I'm keen that I don't wake up one day and discover this entire space that we've beautifully automated is actually redundant because someone's done the complete next step and go, dude, you don't need these contracts at all. It's now all smart contracts on the, on the blockchain. So, you know, maybe that's one of the interesting things as a founder is you start off by looking to solve a given problem. And then you have to be a bit careful 
you know, you don't want to drink too much of your own Kool-Aid and get ahead of yourself and, you know, jump the shark and solve some problem that no one is interested in. I mean, I have totally zero people today coming on Seed Legals going, I really want to do a smart contract. Well, my, 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 my articles and shareholders agreement, my investors really wants to be on blockchain. I mean, totally zero people say that. So, you know, I, I shouldn't waste my time doing that. But on the flip side, if I don't do something, then one day for sure, I will wake up and discover that someone's built a secondaries market that, you know, has a different class of contracts and so on. So I think being, you know, out disrupted is an interesting uh, problem space and how much time you spend on that next step versus just, you know, sanely uh, and organically growing your business. Um, I don't know if you've seen them. You're, you're associated with Index Ventures, but they came up with something that was quite interesting, which was a playbook for US expansion. And they whittled it down to certain kinds of um, business archetypes. And I wonder if here you're almost implying that, that there becomes instantiations of certain cases or types of business, and therefore they could be whittled down to almost a couple of clicks to deliver the, the best fundraising model and term sheet suite for them and is that what you're sort of envisaging with that sort of next layer um on top of what you're already building um well i think firstly you know to a certain extent it's a thought experiment because like all you know companies there's a giant backlog of things that uh, you know tech debt things people need short-term things that are coming up you know we we see that you know with COVID. You're, probably a lot of people are going to be making companies making redundancies. So we'd like to offer a product there. We have a new employment piece with a comp table to help build your team. So it's not just about investment. So obviously you want to balance the things that people are coming to you uh, for solutions now versus the things later. But I think one of the key things that you know, many customers ask us is, can you help us find investors? And at the moment we go, well, no, we're not in that business. But, you know, at some point that is an interesting thing uh, to, to get involved with. It becomes an FCA regulated activity. I think there's also secondary markets, which are really interesting, which is people invest in your business, but, uh, you know, selling their shares, they need, there's, there's no market for it. So they can either, an investor either sells their shares on an exit of your business, or they have to go find someone to buy their shares. But can you create that liquidity? Can you match people? Can you make it easier for investors to be able to sell their shares, which might, of course, make your company more investable if they, uh, see they have an exit. So I don't have the answer, but we certainly, you know, in the thought experiment stage of all of those. And do you have anything to do with acquisitions? So M&A is uh, an interesting one. And um, I, despite having sold a couple of businesses, I think the, um, I think the start of a company is very self-similar. Uh, the end games, I think, are quite different. So M&A, the exit of a company could be, you know, it just winds down. It could be it's a stellar exit. It could be it's a, you know, acquihire for team. Um, so I think there are a lot more st companies started than exiting. Um, so it's, it's an area of interest. Um, but I think I'm not ready to jump in to see how we might be able to automate that because I just don't understand it. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm just interested because when you look at the, the life cycle of companies, 
the, the the lion's share of the the products that you offer are focused right at the very start and that makes sense because that's where most of the companies are um but it's interesting to see like where the value lies as as companies advance and if you can still offer s- services to you know companies raising a, a series g for example um but but maybe at that point you know they just use lawyers because it's too big and too complicated i don't know so, you know, that's really interesting. So for us, um, you know, one of the key, key questions is, is there kind of a glass ceiling, right? So when companies get to a series A or B or something, they go, well, we you know, need to use a law firm. Uh, and there, I think I divided into two, which is companies that started off on seed legals and grow with us and ones that, you know, just existed before. And I think the answer is now becoming clearer with the passage of time. So. You know, we've been live for a little over three years, which and we're now seeing, you know, those first companies that started with us reaching that Series A stage. In fact, there's one Series A round closing this morning on Seed Legals and there might be one uh, this afternoon. So which is fantastic. And those are companies that have done two previous rounds with us. So I think what we see is, you know, our, our platform is sticky in that once you've seen that this is the operating system built to build your business, then you kind of stay with it. And, you know, that's my, my kind of drug dealer approach, which mm-hmm. is make it addictive. Um, and, and here, I think what's quite interesting is that I find that, um, and I think this is a general thing, which is if you can provide something that not only matches the behaviors that people have, but invites people to change their behaviors, then that can be quite powerful. So to give an example, I think founders think that they're going to raise, you know, 150K, then 500K, then 2 million. Um, And what happens is it turns out when you get to wanting to raise your next round, it's actually a big mountain to climb. You know, that you don't just go to an investor and go, I'm looking to raise two mil because you need to have a 20 million valuation uh, or 10 million valuation uh, in order to be able to not give away too much equity. You need to have a certain revenue before investors will talk to you. And so that sort of recedes into the distance. And so what do you do in the meantime? And that's exactly where our rolling close or our seed fast comes in. So what happens is people change their plans because of the easy availability of other solutions and maybe it's a bit like you know lockdown you would like chicken kev for dinner but actually look in your fridge and you know what i'm just going to do whatever's in the fridge and i think um, that that sounds like a terrible way to view my own product but um (laughs) but 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 consistently i see companies that are putting off much larger rounds because they can much more easily top up a last round. And, uh, you know, hey, Anthony, I'm looking to raise five mil. Um, Hey, Anthony, I'm looking to raise five mil. Um, Cut to, uh, you know, two months later, hey, Anthony, I'm raising 500K with instant investment and topping up and I'll be back to raise a bit more later. So I love to be able to offer not only plan A and plan B, but that also means that those companies that started with us are adapting to new ways of fundraising. And that is perhaps the biggest joy I get, which is not just solving a current pain point, but actually changing the way and making it more efficient for people to operate in general.
Do do you think with your product you are taking the peaks and troughs out of fundraising um, with the instant invest? And if so, do you do you actually believe that you're changing the fundraising landscape in the UK? The answer is for sure. I don't uh, think of it. I've got data. So mm. so here's what we did. So you know, we, we kept finding people calling us and going, hey, I'd like to raise, you know, 500K, but I've got 300K lined up. What should I do? You know, do I close a 300K round or now, or do I wait and look for more? And so, you know, we never had a good answer. So we went, okay, great. We'll just make it a one-click option to say, I'd like to raise 300K and top up another 200 later. And we called it instant investment because it was super easy. You created the permissions up front, so you just add investors afterwards. And to protect investors, we limited by time and by amount, and you can set certain preemption other approvals. Um, and then we found people just started using it. But then we looked at the data and we looked for 2018 and 2019. And we found in 2018, people were doing traditional funding rounds on seed legals. And in 2019, they were still doing that, but there's now more money raised outside of a round than in a round. And it's completely transformed the way UK startups raise investment. And I'm hugely overjoyed because you know, in fact, that was the first, this rolling close round was the first kind of step we made that went outside of almost a mandate to just make things more efficient. We weren't just making, you know, what you want to do more efficient. We went, actually, what you thought you wanted to do, we're going to persuade you that there's something else that you want to do. Would that be good or bad? And now we see more people are raising out of round than in round. And I'm delighted that essentially there's a new generation of UK startups who are able to raise in a new way that just wasn't possible before. Now, we didn't invent the advanced subscription agreements and we didn't invent a deed of adherence to close around, but we did productize it and turn it into a few click you know, proposition with all the the SEIS pieces, you know, insured and all the support and the data to show you what to do. And I think that is something that I'm, you know, delighted by because it kind of, you know, did invent something new, um, which is really nice. And importantly, you know, help a lot of founders get to the next step. Yeah, it certainly worked um, really well for, for me and Luke at, at Elmo. So we set out to raise 300, but this was pre-seed. So we were still working and previous uh, previous employment um, and we set ourselves a deadline of August 2019 we got to that deadline and we'd only raised 200k but then the the uh, the instant investment facility allowed us to then close it was actually an additional 150 in the next couple of months subsequent so in other words we were able to get started full-time when we wanted to um, without the fear of uh, having only partially closed or not having the money basically so and and that's you know a perfect use case and then what i really love is late on a sunday night my slack platform integration i'll get a slack message saying you know so and so has raised 10k 50k 5k 100k whatever it is you know at midnight on a sunday night mm -hmm. using instant investment okay yes this is really you know and actually what's quite interesting is if you're building a business that's going to you know compete with existing businesses in fact, often the things that you that that people value the most are not the ones that you might expect. So, you know, lawyers do legals. My platform 
does legals, but actually nobody's really interested in legals. People are looking for some solution. And a solution is something that, you know, you can do on a Sunday night when you're doing your payroll, taxes, all this other stuff that you need to do as a founder. If there's something that's always on and a human will talk to you, you know, in five minutes and answer something rather than booking a call next Wednesday, you know, these are actually the, the key differences that people are looking for. And I'm quite surprised that, you know, others in offering a more traditional service haven't changed their model to match that. Mm. It doesn't mean you need a big platform. You just change a range of other things. I'm not giving ideas here, so don't mm. listen to this if you're a little <laughs> <laughs> um, to follow on from this point, where, so I've got two questions in this, this question. Um, where do the boundaries now get set for rounds versus somebody drawing out uh, an extended round via instant first or seed fast? Um, and does it run the risk of a founder being caught in a kind of perpetual funding round. So they're kind of constantly in that mode of fundraising and running their business. Sure. Um, so yeah, where, where are the cutoff points now as you see them between rounds? So that's a great question. There's no clear answer. So let, let's take a step back. Once upon a time, you know, you want to do a funding round. It was very expensive to do all the legals um, and it would take a long time. So you probably need three months to find investors, then three months to close your round. And then the goal on a funding round is to use the money to get traction to raise again. And your next round typically is going to be at three to five times the valuation of your last round and raising three to five times the amount that you raised last time. So, of course, that doesn't change overnight. So you need at least six months to get more traction and you can't risk trading insolvent. So you need three months cash in the bank. So that's 15 months. So you'd see this uh, cycle of every 15 months, this big go go big or go bust, you know, raise three to five X the last round. And for a founder, it's immensely stressful. So you get all this money in the bank up front. Yes, I'm rich. I've got lots of money. And then slowly it goes down month on month. And you've been hiring people, your burn rate goes up and you see the wall arriving. So, you know, and I've been there. And uh, so does it have to be that way? So what I've got is a set of tools that let you change it. Like all tools, the thing is how to use them wisely. And here I think they fall into a few patterns. So pattern number one is I'm looking to raise, let's say, 200K, um, but I'm not there yet. And I've actually got a few investors, maybe they're friends and family, maybe they're other investors that would are happy to invest 20K now. So I've got 20K lined up way too early to do a round. The solution there is our seed fast which lets you raise ahead of a round. You don't need to decide the valuation now. And you can use that money to increase your valuation. It has to now with HMRC rules around SEIS, you have to have the round or it has to convert within six months. So, you know, your plan is raise small amounts to get you to a round within six months and use this money to grow the business, get traction, launch the product. So that's pattern number one. Pattern number two is you wanted to raise a certain amount, but you just couldn't get all the passengers on the bus before the bus has to go. So you're going to send the remainder on an Uber later. And that is the you know, example we just heard, which is I want to raise 300K. I kind of got to 200 and now I'll just top up the rest later. 
So that's pattern number two. And these are both essentially saying, you know, I'm still doing a funding round, but actually I've got some passengers before and I've got some, some late arrivals later, but those, you know, that funding round instead of being a spike is now more of a curve. But I think there's another pattern, which is I'm just going to do continuous fundraising. Hmm. And that is, you know, some founders just love to do that. So I have one company on Seed Legals that has done literally over 100 seed fasts. The founder, every weekend, every Saturday or Sunday night, would do another two or three seed fasts on Seed Legals. I'm convinced she went out partying and the pickup line was, what's your email address? Can I send you a seed fast? And, and she raised 250K over six months or so with seed fast that all converted in a 500k round and i think she just loved continuous fundraising i'm sure that mm-hmm. when she did a round it was like what do i do on saturday nights now <laughs> but um but, but i think that's not for everybody so i th- i think really it's you know i suspect the plan in general is to do a funding round you know as before but things don't go to plan and you have investors who want to give you money up front and you need money up front. Um, and that's where, you know, the other options become useful. And I think it would be remiss of us not not to touch upon the fact that you're now not just doing this in the UK, but I think I'm right in saying that you've launched in France and and presumably have eyes in, in other places as, as well. Um, that sounds like a, a, re- a real challenge because it's not, it's not simply a case of copy pasting uh, your UK blueprint, I imagine. Right. So fascinating. Um, so my goal here, taking a step back, is you know, transferwise gives you borderless banking. Um, legals are horribly localized. Can we transform that to create borderless legals? So of course, it's not just the language that's different, um, but actually, you know, in the UK, you have shareholders agreement and articles. But, uh, but in other countries, it's different, or you need different uh, ways of signing things or different agreements that people can sign. Can we reduce that to a normalized set of deal terms? So when you think about it, at a term sheet level, you're always actually fundamentally agreeing the same things with the investors. This is a valuation. This is how much equity you're going to get. You know, you're going to get a board seat. I've got to get this found investing. These are the drag longs. So can you still keep that at a global level, but then magically the platform will render the documents in the local language and the local set of legals? And uh, so we decided France is the first country we would do that in. Why? My business partner is French. Our CTO is French. Um, our COO is French. So um, there were enough French speakers and it's you know, just it's easy enough uh, to, to get there. So we have four people in France uh, based in Station F, which alas has been closed the last six months. But uh, we've essentially cracked the French legal system. And I'm delighted. I don't speak French. I would never have invested in a French company. But on Seed Legals, I can see all the deal terms in English, exactly the same uh, questions and answers essentially that match a UK round. But the system will magically build everything, not only in French, but it turns out some deal documents in France are in English. So here's what I love, which is investors, many funds are you know, global funds. So they want the shareholders agreement and the term sheet to be in English. 
mm. but in which is fine. But in France, the company's articles, because that's a you know statutory thing, they get lodged with Gref, their version of company's house, have to be in French. So the platform magically builds some things in English and some things in French. But you can always see the deal terms in English. So so if you think about it. It's a bit like the first step towards smart contracts. We have a standardized set of things that humans want to agree with each other, you know, in plain English or plain whatever language you want. And then the platform will render the output in English legals, English law legals or French law legals and French, or one day, you know, as a smart contract and a blockchain or whatever it might be. So anyway, we're live in uh, France and in Ireland. And soon we'll see uh, other countries as well. But I think, you know, what's interesting is with COVID, it's uh, surprisingly our business has been unaffected. In fact, business is growing. Um, but the one thing that I found is I think um, we had enough traction in the UK prior to COVID that I think with people on lockdown, they know about seed legals. And they know we're a great solution that's going to save them money when they need to save money more than ever before and so on. So business has been great. But in France, we launched more recently. In fact, we're about to launch at Stachonoff at exactly the time it was shut down. So mm. there it's actually been much harder because people don't know us. And until there's a vibrant startup scene that you can be doing events every Wednesday night and Thursday nights and Tuesday nights and whatever, it's hard to get known. So I think interestingly, COVID for me has put the brakes slightly on the international expansion, you know, and, and also the plans I had to pop over the Eurostar and, you know, present uh, at events in France. You just, that's just not happening. So, um, it's, it's quite interesting that perhaps the takeaway for me is entering a new market is actually much more difficult with COVID, whereas enhancing an existing market uh, is a more attractive proposition. Um, Anthony, I'm going to pull you on a bit of a segue here. I think, I think justified. So I was reading an article that says Europe's still got a lot to desire in terms of our, our willingness to share equity with early stage employees and reward them in a sort of employee share options manner versus the US, which obviously... It's far, a far greater expectation for their employees. Now, you have created a product since we last spoke for EMI share option schemes. Yeah. What is it that you've done to improve that? Um, and, and how has that been going for you? So, um, really interesting question and great answer, by the way, just in case you think there was not. So, uh, you know, we started with funding rounds and then uh, we were thinking about doing share option schemes and everyone told us these share option schemes are very difficult, completely different domain to funding rounds. You need uh, accountants to do the valuation with HMRC and you need lawyers to don't go there. And so that answer didn't make sense. And so we set about cracking that. And uh, thanks to my genius business partner, what we did is we took a domain that was owned by accountants, which is this HMRC valuation, and transformed the problem space into a share class restrictions problem space and a machine-generated output that is amazing. So let me explain. So um, 
if you give uh, shares to your employees, it creates a taxable benefit for them and a deemed benefit for the company. So both parties have tax liabilities. So never give shares to employees because it's going to be a costly tax problem for both parties. And instead, you give them share options. But if you give them share options, when they exercise the options, so in other words, they give the company a penny per share and buy the share, then if they're still an employee at the company, the company has a tax problem, their tax liability as if it was a benefit to the employee, and the employee has a tax issue. So the solution is something called an EMI scheme, where it's a so-called tax advantage scheme. So the company pays no tax, and the employee gets a 10% tax rate, uh, and only on the difference in value above the excise price and so on. So it's a really great scheme, but there's a fun gamified experience in it. And the gamified experience is that in order to give the employee the biggest upside, you want to be able to offer them the lowest exercise price. In other words, they pay as little as possible for the shares. And they have to, that means you need to agree a valuation with HMRC for your company that's as low as possible, while at the same time convincing your investors that your valuation is as high as possible. So how can you simultaneously be raising money at a three million pound valuation and convincing HMRC, forget that, my valuation is 300K, because your goal is to get a 90% discount. So what would happen in the past is accountants would look at your cash flow and your burn rate and all sorts of other things go, your business dude is worth nothing. For investors, it's awesome. But this was a huge amount of work and accountants would charge fortunes. What we've done is we've transformed that and we essentially uh, set things up so that your employees get uh, different share class rights that make no difference to the employee, but are seen as less valuable to investors. And then we can demonstrate to HMRC that these are worth less than the shares that investors would get. And so we've automated this. And it's amazing. Based on looking at your cap table and helping create the right share classes, we machine generate this letter that, generate, that looks at 12 criteria and achieves routinely a 95% plus valuation discount. So your employees get the maximum upside. And I'm amazed because it's, it's a completely different, I mean, existentially problem space. Instead of a, a system design that two consenting parties reach agreement on a contract faster and more efficiently, this is a space like SEIS advance assurance and R&D tax credits. It's about convincing a person at HMRC that what you are looking to do is is okay and to get that approved. And of course, to do that completely honestly, and we're never going to do anything that's not right, but to create the share class differences and justify it in order to get that valuation difference. So anyway, we've now automated all of that. And we think we're doing 20 or 25% of all the EMI schemes in the UK as a result. But there's one other thing with EMI schemes, which is nobody really knows what these scheme rules should be. And everyone kept telling us it was so complicated. There are all these different things. It's nonsense. It's like all things. When you look at it, actually, they're like 
five or six things that 95% of people do. And if you just show people the most common sets of things, it turns out they will gravitationally attract to those. And, and it's not to take people to the wrong set of things. Those are the most commonly used ones because they're actually the most sensible things. So here's the quick 101 on, on EMI op or a share option scheme. So if you're giving share options to your team, the question is, you know, firstly, they might vest over a period of years. So typically they might vest over three years. So if your employee leaves after a year, they have to give back or they lose, you know, two thirds and they keep one third. If they stay full three years, they keep everything. Um, and that's your vesting period. But there's a bit more to it because sometimes you want to reward people for the amount of time they've stayed with the business. But in other times you might think, well, you know, our goal is to build a business and exit and make something on an exit. If you don't stay with us, the course of the journey, you know, we have a rocket going to the moon. If you want to get off part way, maybe that's a bad analogy, but you know, <laughs> we're on a bus going to Manchester. <laughs> if you want to get off halfway, dude, there's nothing in it for you. You've been paid a salary. That's fair. But the whole point is you're with us to exit. So there is something called an exit only scheme, which is to say, if you leave before we exit, you, you get nothing. So if you, if we exit during your vesting period, then you can also say, actually we'll accelerate everything optionally. So there are a few variables and actually, once you've uh, shown people what the variables are and helped them understand what makes sense for their team and their business, actually, it turns out to be remarkably similar. And there we see now two patterns. I, I forget the data offhand, but I think about half of schemes are pure vesting and uh, you can exercise your shares either at any time or only when you leave the company. And the other half are so-called exit-only schemes, which is if you leave before we've exited, you get nothing because the idea is you're incentivized to be with us on the journey. So, um, and, and what I really delight there is that, you know, in previous companies that, that I started, I did the option schemes myself and I kind of learned on the job and I probably hashed it up a bit. Um, and now, you know, I finally have clarity. Oh, do this and I shouldn't have done that. And that pained me enormously. I'll never do that again. And now you've got those options to, to excuse the pun, to set it up, you know, optimally. And by the way, one more data point is that um, while you're happy for employees to have their shares vest or their options vest over time, generally it's a nuisance that they exercise their options while they're an employee, because that means that they become a shareholder while they're an employee. Ideally, you'd set it up so they have non-voting shares, which helps get a lower valuation discount or better valuation discount with HMRC. But also, you don't want them getting management reports. Management reports might include confidential information on salaries, so or budget or whatever. And so, you want to avoid your team getting, you know, information that may not be appropriate for your team. I mean, your mileage might vary. You might decide that's awesome. We should do that, but 
you now start having potentially minor shareholders in your cap table. You might have people in your team who've left acrimoniously. They've joined a competitor. You don't like each other, but you're still giving them shares in your business. So you can set things up to either allow that or not allow that. And a common thing is to go, okay, great, your shares will vest. You, it's fine if you leave the business, but you can only exercise your options when you leave the business or, or on an exit so that we don't have you as a shareholder while you're also an employee. So that's my 101 on option schemes. Well, um, and it's, it's just gone two o'clock, so I'm slightly conscious of the time. Um, but it's been fascinating catching up and it's, it's a pleasure to hear that you're, you're doing so well. And um, we're going to look forward to what the next three years bring. I look forward to uh, the next podcast we can do. I have totally no idea what the world will be like in, in three years. Um, will it be, you know, on our side, linearly the same or, you know, exponentially different? Who knows? And, and in general, um, I, you know, and, and will COVID still be there? Hopefully not. So, yeah. But we'll, we'll we'll, we look forward to finding out and uh, we'll all try and enjoy the journey. All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity I've uh, and, and for being able to rabbit on about some uh, passion things for me. And I hope it was uh, generally informative as well. Yeah, super as always. Thank, Thank you, Anthony. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, audiored at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.